Hi everyone, welcome back to the We Are podcast. I'm Ahana. And I'm Celine. And today we are joined by a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, uh, my name is Tom Mauser. Yeah, and thank you for joining us today. Um, so Tom Mauser, you are a member of the Colorado Ceasefire. Could you tell us about your position in it and what the Colorado Ceasefire is? Sure, I am, I, I've been on the board of Ceasefire um, since just after it began in uh, year 2000. Uh, at one time I served as president, now I'm serving as um, secretary of the board. So I, I've been very involved with it for mm-hmm. over 23 years. Oh, wow, that's really imp- impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, um, just for some context in your experience? Sure. Um, I'm 71 years old. I'm retired. Uh, mm-hmm. I spent my career working for the Colorado Department of Transportation. Mm-hmm. And I moved to Colorado in 1976. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in the Pittsburgh area. And um, I led a just a pretty, I guess you'd say, normal life, nothing real exciting. Uh, and then everything, everything changed uh, in 1999 when my son Daniel was one of the victims at Columbine High School uh, who was shot and killed there. Yeah, that well, is so I'm... awful. And we're so sorry that mm-hmm. you and your son had to go through that. And mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, obviously, if you're not comfortable sharing, you do not have to by any means. But if you are comfortable sharing, what was that experience like for you? And could you walk us through what that felt like? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as a parent, it's, it's the worst day of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it really it really changes your life. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my wife and I, for example, we, 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 when we talk about things happening, we often um, uh, speak in, uh, in terms of things being before or after Columbine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a dividing point in our lives. It was a normal mm-hmm. life up until that time, and then every, everything just changed. Um, it, it was a really shocking day when it happened. It, it took it took 24 hours for us to find out whether our son Daniel was one of the victims or not. Um, it, it's just absolutely excruciating to not know, uh, to know that something was happening that day, something terrible was happening that day at Columbine, and then never getting word as to whether he was one of the victims. Yeah, that's devastating that you had to mm-hmm. go through that. And I can't even imagine like yeah. the impact on your mental health and... Um, Mm -hmm. the mental health of all the people involved. Yeah, I mean, I really can't express in words how sorry I am that you had to experience that. It's really a terrible thing. Um, So how would you say this experience impacts your mental health and life in general, like, to this day? Yeah, well, you know, a lot, a lot of things happen when you when you lose a child, you know, especially to gun violence. I mean, you in this case, uh, Daniel was one of the students in the library uh, who was killed. He didn't know the killers, and, and and you know, for the longest time, you you ask yourself this question: Why was my son killed? You know, he did not know the killers. Uh, why, why him? Other others were spared, and and he was killed. You you ask yourself that question. Um, it, it changed my life in many ways because, I mean, it really turned things upside down. It, it happens that, that Daniel, just two weeks before the tragedy, Columbine, uh, asked me a question out of the blue at the dinner table. Dad, did you know there were loopholes in our federal gun laws, the, the, what's called the Brady Bill? Oh, wow. And 
Two weeks later, he was killed with a gun that was purchased through one of those loopholes in the Brady Bill. Yeah. Um, and to me, that was just just not a coincidence. I, I felt I had to do something about mm-hmm. it. Uh, so I became an activist and decided I didn't want other people to go through what I've I've been through. Uh, and that was that was that put a, a big strain on me. Uh, I'm really by nature I'm much more introverted than I am extroverted, and yet once I became uh, an activist trying to fight for stronger gun laws, I had to become more extroverted. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was that was a change certainly for me. Mm-hmm. I, I was somebody who <laughs> I, I have a very active sense of humor, uh, and I uh, have a history of performing uh, at conferences uh, and uh, retirement parties. I do a, a very funny slideshow. Mm-hmm. I, I like to make people laugh. And then overnight, all of a sudden, I became somebody who, when he spoke to audiences, was making people cry. Yeah. Um, that was a very difficult thing for me to do, to go through that. Um, knowing that I, I, I was making people sad. I was making people um, uneasy, you know, when thinking about their, their own safety. But I thought it was something that I had to do. Yeah. Um, and then, then, then it creates conflicts because I became this activist, but my mother or my, my wife, I'm sorry, my wife is much more introverted than me. So she chose not to get involved. Uh, so then you, you have some conflict. You have one person who wants to be out there and speaking and, and involved and, and their spouse really choosing not to do that. It was just too difficult for her. She had, my wife had very serious PTSD, yeah, uh, as a result of, of the, uh, of the shooting. Um, and, you know, and to this day, I mean, I've remained an activist. I speak to audiences fairly often. And still, uh, when I speak to audiences, most of the time, at some point, my voice will crack. I will pause. I have difficulty speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, especially when I speak about my son. It's, it, it's, it's something that gets to you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. The impacts are something that you know, we could never even imagine, like, what that entails, and it's Mm -hmm. something that should never happen, Um, and just going off of that, what do you think the current impact of gun violence in the U.S. is, slash, what do you think the trends we are seeing in the U.S. are impacting us in our community? Well, we're we're certainly seeing uh, an an increase in in gun violence. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we had gone for a number of years, maybe 10, 15 years ago, where things were starting to go down in, in uh, gun violence deaths and injuries. And now, especially during the pandemic and even leading up to the pandemic, really, but the pandemic really uh, uh, increased the, the, the violence quite a bit. And it, it's gone down slightly, but it, it, it's not really gone down a lot. We're, we're just seeing so many more shootings and and unfortunately, you know, we're, we're, I think people are just becoming um, anesthetized to it. There's just mm-hmm. it just almost becomes part of everyday life, and people just tend to say, "Oh, isn't that terrible?" Yeah. I guess there's mm-hmm. nothing we can do. Um, and I think another thing that that's happening that people maybe don't really see that much is that we probably would have many more gun deaths if not for advances in medical science. So we have a number of people who are shot and medical professionals are able to save them. Whereas maybe 20 and 30 and 50 years ago, they would have, they would have died. Mm-hmm. But they got, they, in many of those cases, they have terrible injuries. 
you know, they may be in a wheelchair, they may have brain damage, you know, any number of things. So more people are surviving, but life can be very, very difficult for them. Mm-hmm. And the cost, of course, is extremely high for mm-hmm. taking care of people in those situations in many cases. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting how you talked about how we're just kind of becoming desensitized to the issue, mm-hmm. which I totally agree with. I think because it's so common and it's happening so often, we just are so used to it, but it really shouldn't be something that we're used to. Yeah. Um. So following that, you talked about the p- pandemic, but are there any other recent events that have been impactful in the fight against gun violence or in increasing gun violence or anything related to that? Well, I think certainly in the, in the fight against gun violence, I think the, the, the Club Q shooting mm-hmm. uh, was very significant mm-hmm. in that um, we saw, we, we, we became aware after the fact of the red flags in that case. Mm-hmm. Yes. Of, uh, yeah. How dangerous mm-hmm. this person was. And, you know, even in a place like Colorado Springs, they were saying, gee, wow, could they have done something more? Mm-hmm. Did, did they mm-hmm. not see the red flags with, with this guy? Where, where did he get his guns? And then certainly uh, Parkland, I think, had a big impact because, you know, it, it, it really was a, um, a a key moment in students speaking up more mm-hmm. than they had in the past. Uh, I was very encouraged by what I saw happen after after part, the Parkland shooting uh, where students said, we've got to do something about this. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think we actually talked a lot about um, the ERPOs and the red flags that were like, involved in the club Q shooting that were that went unrecognized and I think that's super important that you brought that up because that is something on the legislative side of things that could definitely help against the fight or help against gun violence and something that people need to understand and talk about more um yeah yeah definitely so just going off of the theme of misconceptions and understanding different legislative actions, what are some things that you would want an average person to know about gun violence or misconceptions about gun violence? You know, I think one of them is, uh, I think people are don't realize that at, at least 60 to 75% of gun deaths are actually suicides using a, a mm-hmm. gun. It's a very significant amount. But I think, unfortunately, we have a number of people who, who think that, um, well, you know, if they didn't use a gun, they would have killed themselves some other way. But that's not the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a reason why someone chooses to use a firearm uh, for suicide, um, because it's, it's almost always fatal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quick. It's, you know, uh, you're pretty much assured of, and again, and guns are very accessible. So, but the thing is, what other methods are we talking about where they would do if they didn't have access to a firearm? And people tend not to use those. They don't jump in front of a bus. They don't jump off of a cliff. Um, for one thing, because in many cases, they can't be sure they're, it's going to work. So you can't just simply say, oh, they're just going to kill themselves another way. So I think that's that's one misconception. I think another misconception is that somehow when we speak of gun violence prevention, we're talking about taking people's guns away or that we're taking away their ability to protect themselves. That That's not the case. We're really talking about what, what are some reasonable things we can do, like background checks, like red flag laws, like keeping guns away from people 
who have shown themselves to be dangerous. Um, it's doing things like that, re- requiring parents to safely store their firearms. It's doing things like that uh, that, that, that this is really about. I mean, the reality is that we have 400 million firearms in this country. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and the, the thought that somehow we're going to take those away from people is, is, is really ridiculous. It's, it's just a way for, um, for gun rights activists to get people fired up by talking about confiscation. This is all about confiscation and taking away all your rights. Uh, there's things that we can do and we should be doing that, that better protect us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how do you think gun violence is impacting specifically youth in our country today? Well, I, I think it's it's happened a number of ways. I think that uh, certainly the uh, the active shooter drills that young people mm-hmm. go through yes. yeah. Um, yeah. can really yeah. impact them right. in a number of ways. Uh, it, it can make you... It might, it might, again, desensitize somebody like, oh, here we go again. Mm-hmm. But for somebody else, it, it, it can uh, it can be a, something that brings on PTSD. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have a relative that, that was uh, shot, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's really made um, young people think more about the issue. And as they especially talk to people like me, mm-hmm. uh, older people who say, we didn't have to go through that. Uh, mm-hmm. All we did was we went through uh, training to 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 go hide under our desk in case there was a nuclear bomb that was dropped on us mm-hmm. by the Russian. Uh, this thought that you'd have to protect yourselves from other students, it didn't happen yeah. thirty and forty and mm-hmm. fifty years ago. So I think more as as young people hear this, they say, "Well, gee, why is this happening to us? Yeah. And and what, what can we do about this? I don't I don't want to live like this." Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I definitely relate to that a lot because, you know, mm-hmm. recently we had a threat on our school and n- no one really thought about it <laughs> too much. It was definitely just like this threat happened and we're moving on. And I mm-hmm. don't think even everyone knows about it, but it is something that like we should consider as something ab- abnormal. But unfortunately, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's something that's just part of our routine yeah, now. I agree. I think it becomes so normalized, especially like with youth in this generation. It's just something that we like have to deal with and we don't sometimes think twice like why do we have to deal with this like it's not fair that we should be having to actually deal with this issue yeah definitely yeah you know when when i was growing up you know sort of the worst thing you'd hear about in high school were fist fights yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and somebody think of it this way that a fist fight would normally be between two people who thought they had a a chance at each other Mm-hmm. If you thought you didn't have a chance against somebody in a fist fight, you probably weren't going to take them on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You fast forward to today and you're that person who feels you can't take that person on. Ah, but a gun can give you that power. Yeah. Oh, I can show them or now I have a way to stand up to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not a healthy thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And in, in terms of school shootings and just the impacts on youth, what are some institu- institutional changes you think that would, would help youth against gun violence? Mm. Good question. Um, well, certainly I think we have to have more cooperation between uh, schools and law enforcement. Uh, we didn't have that at Columbine and, and that really created a big problem. We actually had a situation where the schools the school system thought they couldn't actually communicate with the police about maybe a, a student who was troubled. Oh, 
Yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if the police thought the same. And the school didn't have really good maps of the school. I'm, I'm sorry, the police didn't have mm-hmm. good maps of the school, so they weren't sure where to go. Uh, we've seen some of that change, and I think that change needs to continue, where you really mm-hmm. have cooperation and sharing of information between schools mm-hmm. um, and and law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, things like uh, um, safe to tell are really important to have. We're really lucky to have that in Colorado, and and that came about first in Colorado, where you have an 800 number that you can call or you can do it online and report someone who is you, you think is troubled or maybe suicidal or maybe threatening somebody. Um, I think that's a great thing to have. You know, they follow mm-hmm. up on, on all of those calls, you know, in some fashion. So I think that's a really good tool. But again, people have to know about it. So it's important mm-hmm. for students to know about programs like Safe to Tell, that if they see something, uh, that's something they can do. And this isn't so much institutional, but I think it is a kind of a mindset. It's really important for people, for young people to think, yeah, if I really do hear something, I, I need to say something to somebody. Yeah. And yes, there is a risk. There is a risk that if indeed maybe that person wasn't a danger or I misunderstood. Yeah. You know what? I may get somebody, I may get somebody pretty angry. The fact that I spoke up, but you know, that's a lot better situation to be in than to know, to, to hear something, to see something, but say nothing and have the guilt afterwards if something indeed does happen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And like what you said about communication, I think that's super important, Mm -hmm. especially after hearing you talk about um, what happened at Columbine and not knowing until a day later, like I think communication and having procedures for communication in those circumstances can prevent Mm -hmm. a lot of just disturbance and prevent a lot of terrible things that could happen so Mm -hmm. I think that's a super important point yeah I agree and I think that like educating people about the resources available like you were saying safe to tell is really important because in order for people to like be able to take advantage of those they have to actually know about them and I think there are plenty of people who aren't aware of those so I think it's important to educate people about those so um, kind of going off the institutional changes point, are there any specific legislative actions or bills that you think the public should be aware of? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe Eileen addressed those um, mm-hmm. when you yeah. spoke to her. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, yeah. We've yeah. done a lot in Colorado uh, over the past few years in terms mm-hmm. of uh, universal background checks and a ban mm-hmm. on high magazines and... Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the uh, the red flag law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, I think it's, it's more really strongly more important to, to be educating people about the laws that have passed. If the law is no good, people don't know about it. So it's really important mm-hmm. to do that, to do that part of it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we talk about that a lot. And getting people involved in the legislative process is like one of the biggest steps we can take to ending gun violence. Um and we know that Colorado Ceasefire works a lot to help educate the public. And we were wondering if you knew anything about the gun violence workshops that Colorado Ceasefire hosts and what they are and how people can access those. Sure. I, I've, I've been doing a number of those workshops mm-hmm. myself. Uh, I, I do a fair amount of public speaking, especially once I became retired. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one workshop we give um, is on uh, the red flag law. 
extreme risk protection order law. Mm-hmm. We, we, we would do that one. We also do one on the safe storage law that requires people to safely store their firearms. And then in some cases, we will do a session that covers both of them. All depends on uh, what the people we're speaking to want. Mm-hmm. They want one or the other, or they want to have both. And increasingly, they've been, they've been wanting both of them spoken about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those types of educational resources are really valuable. Um, So what are ways that people can help with gun violence prevention efforts, whether it be just in general or specifically with your organization? Hmm. I think certainly becoming becoming, uh, active and speaking out on the issue. Mm -hmm. I think it's important, for example, you know, to to not, for example, think that the problem is with responsible gun owners. Mm-hmm. No, no, responsible gun owners can play a, a, can play an important role, I think, in, in changing things. But we have to have a civilized talk. We have to really be able to, 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 to meet face-to-face with, with people who have different perspectives and talk about what, 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 do we, what can we agree upon? Where's the mm-hmm. common ground? What, what can we do? doesn't mean we're always going to come to agreement. It doesn't mean we don't try to fight for more, even though they, they may object to it. But I think it's really important to, to bring along people who are responsible gun owners. Too often they, again, are given this, uh, this fearful message from gun rights activists that they're going to confiscate your, your guns and they're going to take away all of your gun rights. Um, and that's just not the case. It's just simply not the case. Uh, there are things that we can do, I think, where we can find common ground. Uh, and, and we have to do it in a, in, in a really civil way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's important for people to let their elected representative know how they feel. Mm-hmm. Even if they say, well, you know, oh, boy, he's he or she is not going to agree with me at all. You know, no, they they are not. They, they don't want to see any changes in our laws. Mm-hmm. But if you then just simply don't approach them, write to them because of that, then they're going to think that nobody in my district thinks any different than me. They have to hear from people. They have to be pressured. I think it's especially, especially important for young people to speak out on the issue because you're the future. And, and you can, you can get politicians really thinking twice, you know, Oh, gee, these young people, they really want some change and they're going to be voting in the future. And Hmm. Maybe I need to think a little bit more about this. I think it's important to, to, for people to let their elected representatives know how they feel about it. You can't re- you can't rely on on polls. Uh, polling may show that yeah people want to change. It doesn't mean that it's going to translate into into change. Uh, for example, in 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 our Congress, nationwide we have. Well over 90% of Americans wanting universal background checks. That is, all gun purchases should go through a background check. Mm-hmm. And yet, we can't get it passed in Washington. Yeah. They're just mm-hmm. simply refusing uh, to do it. A number of people just are blocking it despite that. So if people don't speak up more and say, what do you mean? <laughs> what, what kind of government do we have if 90% of our people believe something? It's not very often you find agreement on with 90% of the population, and yet you're doing nothing about it. Uh, if you want to overcome that, you really got to be speaking out. Yeah. And, getting, yeah. and getting organized, joining organization, I really encourage young people, join an organization, whether that's Colorado Ceasefire, uh, March for Our Lives, um, 
uh, Moms Demand Action, a number of groups that are that are pushing for change. Yeah, join them. Definitely, we actually spoke with a school shooting survivor um, a couple weeks ago who is working with Giffords, which I think is like a great organization that youth can get involved in. Um, and I think that's a super mm-hmm. important detail that you added. Um, and, you know, I think while we are working to prevent gun violence, there is still going to be gun violence um, in the foreseeable future. So do you have any tips on how the average person can protect themselves or any basic rules that people should be aware of given the trending path of gun violence in the U.S.? Sure. I, I think safe for people who do own a firearm, I think it's really important to, to safely store that firearm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just thinking that um, I need to have it handy, you know, I need to put it uh, uh, in, in a drawer next to the bed you know, or under the mattress or under the bed uh, is really dangerous thinking mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of reasons. One, if if you have a young person or someone in your household mm-hmm. who is thinking of suicide, mm-hmm. um, you can have a very bad ending to that. Next, it's really not that often, uh, unless maybe you're a drug dealer, it's really not that often that, that you have home invasions where you need to have immediate access to that firearm. And also, and, and if you even have, let's say, for example, a burglar in your home, um, that burglar, if they're armed, that burglar is probably only a burglar and not a murderer. But if you approach them with a gun and they have a gun, all of a sudden they're thinking, oh, <laughs> I'm in trouble. They're going to shoot me. I'm gonna, I've got to shoot them first. They're not going to run and get themselves shot in the back. They're probably going to shoot. Uh, and most people, even though they may be well-trained w- with a firearm, uh, a lot of people tend to freeze or they're not sure what to do or they're not really a good shot. So, I mean, even police can't hit their tar- target in many cases. So, and so it's not to say that you can't have a firearm for protection. It's a choice that people can make. But it's not the only way to protect yourself. I think it's important for people to think twice about whether they want to have a firearm in their home. If they're really ready for it, if they're really going to get trained. A lot of people who buy a gun really don't know how to use it well. They don't really go to the trouble of getting training. They just think that having it. Now, my opponents will say, oh, see, he's trying to take people's guns away. I'm not trying to take them away. I'm just saying you really ought to think twice about, about whether you want to have one. And if you have one, you need to be a responsible gun owner. Mm-hmm, definitely. I think that was something that Miss um, McCarron mentioned in our last interview, that people think that storing guns safely is a choice, but it's actually the law, and people kind of misunderstand that a lot of the time. So I think mm-hmm. that's something important to note as well. That's right. It is It is the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we really have to pass that to make it real clear that it's public policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's clear, but statistics have shown that a large percentage um, of, of gun owners do not store them safely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they somehow think that, oh, my kid's mm-hmm. not going to find it. Uh, duh. <laughs> if a kid is, you know, sneaking around the house, checking things out, they're, they're going to find it probably. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Um. Yeah, so um, just last question. Um, is there anything in your role at Colorado Ceasefire that has like changed your perspective on the issue of gun violence as a whole? 
you know, I guess I would just say that, you know, getting involved as an activist has has led me to meet a number of other people who've been gun violence survivors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and early on, I learned, I came across a few people who were thinking of getting involved in the issue and then chose not to for a number of reasons, like family pressure or things like that. So and it really has taught me as as a gun violence survivor that in a way I feel like I'm speaking also for those people, mm-hmm. uh, the ones who feel they can't they can't speak up. Mm-hmm. That is just for any number of reasons. It's too difficult. It's too stressful. Whatever. Um, uh, it some for some reason I think because of the inspiration from from my son uh, and remembering him that I decided I I can do this. Uh, Daniel, you see, was Daniel was a member of the debate team at Columbine, yeah. and he he chose to join that uh, debate team even though he was a very very introverted kid, mm-hmm. very shy kid. So I felt that you know if Daniel can do it, I can do it. I I feel like mm-hmm. I've sort of taken his place uh, on that debate team. In this case, mm-hmm. it's the it's this great debate over gun violence and and what are we going to do about it. You know, doing nothing isn't going to make it go away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just simply not going to go away. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, unrealistic. I realize that we're going to continue having a lot of gun deaths in this country. The question is, we're going to do something to at least try to reduce it yeah. and take away this pain that people have. Doing mm-hmm. nothing is not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, spouting cliches like, uh, oh, it's not the it's not the gun; it's the person. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Or it, take away guns, uh, only only criminals will have guns. You know, cliches like that don't solve problems. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just a way to, to to dismiss the problem and not deal with it. Mm-hmm. We have to do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. and yeah, it's so inspirational to hear um, about your experiences and how they've shaped your views on gun violence and how they can shape our views on gun violence as well. And we appreciate you doing this interview mm-hmm. with us. Do you have any final remarks that you would like to make? Sure. Uh, I would say a lot of people are saying that our gun violence problem is mostly mostly rooted in mental health. Mm-hmm. And I really have to dispute that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're talking mental health, that can be treated where somebody has a treatable diagnosable uh, mental health issue. Sorry about that. Um, Studies have shown that a very small portion of gun violence comes from uh, people who have a diagnosed mental illness. They tend to be more victims than they are um, perpetrators of gun violence. Now, some people might argue with that and say, well, wait a minute. Aren't, aren't people who are um, uh, disturbed, you know, isn't that part of the problem? Well, sure, we can all say that somebody who commits gun violence is crazy or disturbed. But, you know, those are those are feelings. Those are behaviors. That's not something you go to a mental health counselor and say, hey, you know, I'm crazy. You know, or I'm angry. Can you can you cure me? Uh, in far too many cases, it's people who do have these 
behavioral problems or these issues, and it turns deadly because they, they try to solve their their problem uh, with a firearm. And, you know, that's not something that you can go to a mental health counselor in many cases and, and just simply fix. So let, let's not blame mental health or people who, who have a mental health issue as if to say that, oh, they're the problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I, I think that's very important um, and a misconception that a lot of people have. And mm-hmm. again, we yeah. we learned so much from this mm-hmm. interview and we greatly respect you, everything you've been through and appreciate you so much for doing mm-hmm. this interview with us. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we just want to thank say- you so much. Yeah. Um, it's really admirable how you've been able to just become so involved in the cause. And we're excited to get more involved in the cause, too. So thank you for just inspiring other people to get involved as well. Yes. You're welcome. And, and thanks for your getting involved. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. All right. You have a great day. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank great. you so thank much. You. Thanks.